All right, we're going to be in Ezekiel 8 through 9 today. Um, so let me just recap to uh, get us to where we're going to go today. So do you remember everybody was here for chapter 1 of Ezekiel? You guys remember chapter 1? There was a big vision. Right, Ezekiel has this vision, and in the vision he sees, uh, what did he see first? Okay, these four like weird angels with four faces, and then there's like fire everywhere, and it's in the storm, and there's these weird uh, like um, wheels, inside of wheels, and I said that they were like the original spinner rims, you know, like, did you get that in your new car? No, no spinners? De- Come on, Dennis. Uh, anyway, they're the original spinners, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, then he looks up, and he sees this big platform, and then on the platform is a throne, and then on the throne is this guy. Uh, And the guy is, like, on fire. His feet are on fire, and his face is on fire. Anyway, and and then at the end of the vision, he says, this was the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he sees God's throne, and he sees God kind of in human form on the throne. It's pretty amazing. Um, So the big question, though, is how was... God in Babylon, because you remember Ezekiel was sitting by the river in Babylon. And so we kind of left it there. That was the, the big question, though. And then after that, we read a bunch of chapters where Ezekiel did these weird... Then we read the call of Ezekiel in chapters 2 and 3. And then we read after the call of Ezekiel, he starts doing these sermons, but they're these weird skits. Do you remember the skits? Okay, take your Legos and go build the model of Jerusalem and then take the army guys and lay siege to it and all this stuff. And the point of all those sermons was the same, that God is going to judge his own people. But through it all, through all these different skits, I think there were like eight of them, um, it's never really explained why was God in Babylon. It just sort of is left there. It brings up the question, why is God in Babylon? Then he moves on and then he never really gets back to it. Um, It's kind of hinted at because in that section he talks about how um, he's going to let the temple be destroyed when the Babylonians come, right? The temple's going to be destroyed. But he never actually says, and when that happens, I'm leaving Jerusalem. Like, my presence in a special way is going to leave Jerusalem. Now we get to chapters, chapter 8. And in chapter 8, starts a vision that goes 8, 9, 10, and 11. So it's four chapters of a vision. We're going to do it this week and next week. We're kind of splitting this up uh, into two because it would take too long to read. In this section, though, what we're, I'm going to spoil the whole vision, okay? God actually says, hey, I'm leaving Jerusalem. And I'm going to show you why I'm leaving Jerusalem. And the way that this this whole section, 8 through 11, works is one vision. Okay, so um, all four of these is like, it's kind of like a movie. And in the movie, uh, we have different scenes. So you'll see something over here, and then it like cuts to over here and over here. So Ezekiel has this vision, um, and he jumps from scene to scene. So we're going to read the setup, and then we're going to read all the different scenes, and that'll take the next two whole weeks. So we're not going to get through all the vision today. All right, verse 1. Let's uh, follow along if you have your Bible there. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month. So um, remember, I told you, we know how to date these things. Well, okay, I'm going to be honest, not me, but the guys who know stuff, right? They know how to date the the Bible scholars and stuff. They know how to date these, um, the dates that Ezekiel gives us. So this is September 17th, 592 BC, uh, just over a year, a little over a year, a year and a few months after Ezekiel's first vision. So that's how long has passed in the book. So in, the, in that time, I was sitting in my house. Now, I was reading a little bit about this. House is like the right word in the sense that it's his home. This is where he lives. But house is the wrong word if you're thinking of the suburban house with the picket fence. And he's sitting in the... Okay. Uh, The Babylonians didn't take all of these folks captive from Jerusalem, drag them a couple thousand miles across the desert, and then say, now we need you to farm this land, and here are these beautiful houses. This is what they did. They took them across, they farmed the land, and they said, now do whatever you want. And so what most of these houses were, some kind of like a mud hut is what you should think of here. And we know this because later on in the book, uh, we'll get to this later, but Ezekiel, God tells him, hey, I need you to dig a hole through the side of your house. And he takes his hands. And so if you could dig a hole through the side of something with your hands, it's not bricks. Um, Okay, so he's living in this mud hut. uh, And most likely it was kind of like a small mud hut with a little place to sleep on the side and a little um, uh, section in the middle where you would cook food and then a little hole in the top where the smoke could come out the top, you know. Um, So here he is. uh, He's in his little mud hut after a pretty rough year, right? Do you remember Ezekiel's year? Eat this 
disgusting food, but even the disgusting food, you barely get any of it. And then every day you have to go outside and you have to lay on your side for like most of the day while everybody sits there and watches you. And if they ask you what you're doing, you're not allowed to say anything back. You just lay on your side. And then after that, a certain amount of time, I need you to just flip over and do the other side. <laughs> and then at night, get up, go in, fall asleep on your mud hut on your side, and then come back out. And that was his whole year. And he, got, he probably um, lost a bunch of weight. So anyway, it's been a year and change. From laying in front of his house, it says, and the elders of Judah were sitting in front of me. So these were the leaders of uh, the people in the exile. So here, these leaders are at Ezekiel's hut. And it tells us something really interesting. Something about the last year made all of these uh, elders um, think about Ezekiel and go, oh, I think he might be a real prophet. So we don't know exactly what it was that made them flip the switch that he's not just nuts and he lays on his side all day because he's lazy, he doesn't want to be a farmer or something. But something about Ezekiel made them go, okay, this guy knows what's up. And so here they are, they're at Ezekiel's house asking him questions probably because they know this guy speaks for the Lord. And in asking him the questions, you can, we can imagine, we don't know for sure, but we can imagine the kind of questions that they'd be asking him, right? Why are we in exile? Can you go ask God why I don't live in Jerusalem anymore? Why did the Babylonians come and take me away? How can we, second question, how can we worship God in Babylon if his presence is in Jerusalem? Right? God said, I'm going to put my presence in a special way in the temple. So how, we're all the way over here. How does that work? And the third question, are we ever going home? Is this permanent? Do we, is this like the new Israel? Is this little town, suburb of Babylon? So he's sitting here, the elders are there, it says in the end of verse 1, and the hand of the Lord came down on me. So that's good timing, right? Is Ezekiel is sitting there, and the elders are going to ask him some questions. <clears throat> hey, do you have a message for us from the Lord? And at the exact moment, the Lord comes down on him, and he has this vision. And it says, verse 2, I looked, and there was someone who looked like a man. From what seemed to me his waist down, uh, was fire, and from his waist up was something that looked bright, like <clears throat> sorry, like the gleam of amber. This is the king on the throne from chapter one. So who he sees now is God, the king, right? The 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 king on his throne. Verse three. He stretched out what appeared to be a hand. He took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and carried me in the vision in visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the inner gate that faces north. North. Okay, this is the weirdest verse in the Bible. Okay, maybe not the weirdest, but it's definitely top five. Did you read what just happened? He has a vision. So in his vision, though, his vision is like he's still seeing things as they kind of appear in his vision, you know? And so at some point, the hand of God comes down on him, right? And then he sees this guy. And uh, you know like when Superman carries somebody away? You know, you know what I mean? What does he always do? He flies down, and where does he grab him? Around the waist. And he takes off. Okay, Ezekiel's vision is I'm sitting there, and then I see the guy from chapter one from a year ago. And he reaches down and he grabs my hair. And he flies me. <laughs> he pulls him by the hair and he flies him away. That's what it says. That's so weird. I'm just pointing that out. This is a weird, weird, this whole vision is kind of weird. So where did they go? He takes him in the vision. So he doesn't literally take Ezekiel. This Ezekiel's body this whole time is. Uh, in his mud hut. And we don't know how long this vision lasted. We don't know uh, what he looked like when he was having this vision. Was he like wigging out or was he just sitting there staring? And like, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so what he sees, so he doesn't physically go to Jerusalem. And so what he's going to see in this vision is not the actual Jerusalem. He's seeing a vision of Jerusalem. So we can't, we don't, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation exactly what was happening in Jerusalem, but everything he sees has a meaning to what was really going on in the real city of Jerusalem. And so specifically, they go to the entrance of the temple, um, the outer wall. So the way the temple worked was there was all these different like courtyards that led to the building, and then inside the building, there were a couple of rooms that led to the center, which was the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was supposed to live, right? So he, the, <clears throat> the hand pulls him by the hair, takes him to the outer edge of the temple. And they get to the outer edge, and look at the rest of verse 3, where the offensive statue that provokes jealousy was located. So literally, the Hebrew, what it says is an image of jealousy. Um, 
he gets to the courtyard of the temple. By the way, and when they rebuilt the temple, the courtyard of the temple, the area where they're kind of hanging out here, was called the porch. It was called Solomon's Porch, and that's why we named our church the porch, because it was actually the first place the early church met, uh, was in this outside. But back a couple hundred years, in Ezekiel's vision, he gets there, and there's an idol set up in the temple, at the outside of the temple. That's, our, that's unbelievable to somebody reading this in the uh, ancient world, right? Any of these ancient Jewish folks. Verse 4, I saw the glory of God, uh, sorry, I saw the glory of the God of Israel there, like the vision that I had seen in the plain. So it's been a year. So you can imagine that Ezekiel spent the whole year wondering, am I ever going to get to see this again? That that was the coolest thing I ever saw. It was life-changing. Am I ever going to get to be close to the presence of God like that again? And the answer is yes. Here he is in the temple. He sees that. He even says, just like I saw like a year ago. Um, And so that's the, like I said, that's kind of the setup for this, for this whole vision, is God grabs him by the hair, carries him, and sets him in the outer part of the temple in Jerusalem. And again, like I said, this is a vision. He's not literally at the temple. But what happens next is we have all these different scenes, just like in a movie. So scene one goes from verses five and six. Then the Lord said to me, son of man, look towards the north. So I look towards the north. And there was an offensive statue north of the altar gate at the entrance. So right when you walk into the temple, they put up an idol. We don't know what idol, right? But in in the entrance, and then verse 6, he says to me, Son of man, do you see what they're doing here? More detestable acts that the house of Israel is committing, so so that I must depart from my sanctuary, you will see even more detestable acts. So this is the charge. They set up, and the first thing you see when you walk into the idol, I'm sorry, into the, the entrance of the temple is an idol. is a golden calf, a bull. It doesn't say what it was. Some pagan idol in the house of God. Um, there's a church. I won't say what church. Melissa knows. I can't stand it. I walked in there once. It's this beautiful building here in San Francisco. Everybody loves it. They go to concerts there. They do yoga. You walk in. Do you notice the first thing you see when you walk in on the right? A chapel for all faiths and all these symbols from other religions in the entryway to this church. I imagine this is a lot like what Ezekiel felt, like what I feel when I walk into that church. I don't even want to go in there anymore, like inside the building. It makes me kind of upset. Um, it's, so he says the result of the, so the charge is they've put this idol here. The result is, so I have to leave. That's what God says very plainly. There's no mincing words. There's no, what does this prophecy mean? He says, look at what they're doing. How can I live here? I mean, they're putting, you know, imagine a situation for a minute. This guy has an affair, cheats on his wife. Not a great dude, okay? Well, the wife is cool, like not cool, but, you know, she's a godly woman, let's say. And she says, look, even though I can leave, I have this ethic of love, and I want to try to work this out. I want to try to love my husband who's fallen into this sin, and I'm going to... stick in this marriage. I do know somebody who does. I mean, you know, we're not getting into the ethics of this and that you have to, don't read too much into this. Okay. So she says, I'm going to stick around. And then one day she comes home and the mistress is sitting in the living room with her feet up. And the husband goes, hey, she lost her lease. Is it cool she stays here for a few weeks? (laughs) Right? That's the beginning of every unsolved mysteries case of the disappearing husband, right? Like, (laughs) <laughs> you remember that show, like I who unsolved mysteries? Anyway, uh, she's going to kill him. That's what's going to happen. This is, what, this is basically what they're saying to God is, hey, I'm going to bring the mistress into the temple, into your house. Uh, God says, no, I'm moving out. I'm not, I'm not going to live here. So you can imagine Ezekiel seeing the idol at the gate of the temple. He's pretty appalled. But God says to him, you can imagine, he looks at it and God says, I'm going to leave. And he's just in complete and utter shock and disbelief. You're going to, like, I can't believe what they've done. And then God says, you think that's bad? Oh, that's just scene one. It gets worse. He says, I'll show you something even worse, more detestable. Scene two goes from verses 7 to 13. They pray to the animal deities. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. So they're working their way. The way this vision works is it goes like this. Like, the temple is this big complex, and they're working their way towards the middle, right? So each thing they get one, each scene they move one step, oops, they move one step closer to the middle of the temple. And when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. 
And he said to me, son of man, dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall and I discovered a doorway. And he said to me, go inside and see the detestable and wicked acts they're committing here. Again, I love how weird this vision is. Do you remember at the beginning of Ezekiel? I said that there was that guy who did the video series I watched on Ezekiel while I was studying it the last few months. And one of the things he said was, I think I've been in Ezekiel so long that now I'm weird. He's like an Ezekiel scholar. He's been doing this for 30 years, writing books about it. Anyway, this is part of what he was talking about. There's some weird little things in this. So this is what happens in the vision. He goes up to the wall and he sees a hole in the wall and he starts to look at it. And God says, dig through it, make it a bigger hole in the wall. And so he gets down and he does it. And um, <clears throat> now, again, we have to remember this is a vision. In the temple in Jerusalem, there's not literally a wall with a hole in it. This is all happening in the vision. Um, I think the imagery here, though, is what he's about to see was done in secret. You have to dig through the wall to see it. This is not in the temple courtyards where everybody can see what's going on. Right? This is in the back, the janitor's closet. Or, you know, like This is where nobody's supposed to see what these folks are doing. So what are they doing? Verse 10, when I went in and I looked and there was engraved all around the wall and there engraved all around the wall was every kind of abhorrent thing, uh, crawling creatures and beasts, as well as all the idols of the house of Israel. Seventy elders from the house of Israel were standing before them with J. Azaniah, son of Shaphan, great baby name, standing among them. Each had a fire pan in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising up. He said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at their shrine of his idol? For they are saying, Yahweh the Lord does not see us. Yahweh has abandoned the land. Again, he said to me, you will see even more detestable acts that they are committing. So look, he, he digs through and he sees this like, you know, in every James Bond movie, when James Bond breaks into some secret lair and he looks and there's always like the secret society of people He's, up, he's always up high on a balcony, and he looks down, and he sees... Indiana Jones did this kind of same kind of thing, right? And he looks down, and he sees all these wicked leaders and what they're doing or whatever. Um, that's what's going on here. So he looks down, and he sees on the walls and everything, there's these animal deities. They're carved all over the walls. And most scholars agree that these are the gods of Egypt. So these animal deities was... That's what Egypt was known for. Like, you know, they had the, uh, the god that looked like a rat and the god that looked like a frog and the god, you know. So he looks down and he sees all these. Who was worshiping these animal deities? The 70 elders. So this is the earliest version of what eventually becomes the Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders in the New Testament. Um, in the Torah, Moses appointed 70 elders to help him with the people in the worship of God. And that was their mandate. That was their calling. Help the people worship God. But that's not what they're doing. And he even calls out one dude specifically. Right? This is not a great thing to have your name in the Bible for. This guy's name was J. Azaniah, the son of Shaphan, which is really weird because in the book of Jeremiah, uh, this guy's family was like really loyal to God. And before that, his family, he comes from a very godly family. If you read about him in 2 Kings, his family is... Um, uh, helps Josiah with the reforms. And then all of a sudden you see the grandkid, J. Azaniah, the son of Shaphan, this godly family. What is he doing? He's leading the people in the word. It's, it seems very out of place. Um, it'd be like if in 20 years you saw heaven walk down the street with a giant, a Dodger's hat. And you would be like, aren't you John's kid? How dare you? <laughs> right? That's basically what's going on here is, wait, you're Shaphan's kid. He was a godly dude. He helped protect Jeremiah, right? So it's very out of place. And here they are. Instead of leading the people in the worship of Yahweh, these elders are leading the people in the worship of the gods of Egypt. Are we back to Exodus, right? Like, you know, when the people were worshiping the gods of Egypt, they've just come full circle. And so let me tell you why, though. Let me tell you, not to justify it, let me just tell you why they were doing it. And that sounded like I was like, let me explain. This makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense. But um, this is what was going on. You have to remember that geopolitical situation of this time. Israel, the land of Israel, the land of Judah, is on the highway. So uh, think of like I-5, okay? It's the highway that connects L.A. and San Francisco. And there's not really a lot on I-5. Imagine if you had a city on I-5 and San Francisco and L.A. were at war. Boy, that'd be great, wouldn't it? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so imagine San Francisco and L.A. fighting a war. That's Babylon and Egypt. They're fighting a war. And they're the two major political powers of this time, and they're constantly 
uh, jockeying for position and attacking each other and trying to become the most dominant force. There was a third one, Assyria, but um, that was like, I don't know, Seattle or something. But uh, they lost a little while ago. They're, they're kind of out of the picture at this point. Um, and so these two kingdoms are fighting, and Israel is the highway between the two kingdoms. So every time one of these armies has to go get the other one, they have to march through the land of Judah. Right? They have to march right past Jerusalem. And so they're kind of caught between these two superpowers, but they're not a superpower. They're one of those little truck stops on I-5, you know, where you pull over and you get Anderson's pea soup. You know that place? No? Not a fan? <laughs> I love the split pea soup. Anyway, um, and so uh, at different points, you can imagine Judah at different points, what they did was, Whoever was the most powerful of those two kingdoms, they tried to pretend like they were on that side. Oh, Egypt's winning. I'm going to go. I'm going to be on Egypt because then I'll get destroyed a little bit less. And then Egypt loses a battle and they're like, yeah, Egypt, I can't believe it. I'm on the Babylonian side, right? They're kind of waffling back and forth. And another thing is they also believed in the ancient world that gods and nations were intrinsically linked. So if a nation lost a battle or lost a war, while the nations were fighting wars, the gods in the heavens were also fighting a war. And whichever god won the battle, that's who won the battle of the nations. And it's kind of why a lot of, um, you know, like with David and Goliath, or you've, it's in the ancient stuff, like uh, history books and stuff. Um, a lot of times, instead of having the whole army fight, they would just have two guys fight. Because they're like, the, 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 whichever god is going to win is going to win anyway. We might as well not kill everybody. Let's just kill these two guys, you know. And they would abide by that, right? Anyway, so this is what they believed. And it's what's going on here. And so... These leaders of the land of Judah, these 70 elders, they have a Babylonian problem, right? Because Babylon is a bully, and they've already taken two rounds of exiles on their way, fighting Egypt and then heading home. They swung through Jerusalem and took two rounds of exiles. Ezekiel is one of those, was in that second group of exiles. Um, Daniel, and the, they've taken the king. Like, they captured the king and took him away and then set up this idiot uh, uncle as the king, like the puppet king in Jerusalem. And so... The people in Judah now have this problem. We don't know what to do about Babylon. So let's side with the Egyptians, right? Because they're the enemy. So part of siding with the Egyptians, you couldn't just sign a treaty and be like, that's great. Part of that would be you also have to worship their gods. And this is what they were doing. And the way that they justified it at the end of that section is they said, um, it's because God can't see us anyway. God is left, right? That's their excuse. He's not really here. The irony is all of this is being reported in a vision where Ezekiel is standing there with God, watching them do this. And they're saying, God can't see me. But um, of course he sees. The problem is they just don't like his answer. God has already sent Jeremiah at this point. And Jeremiah said to them, you need to surrender to the Babylonians and it'll go easier for you. They don't like the answer. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to control history. So we're going to worship these Egyptian gods. Uh, scene three, though. This is where it gets tricky. They're worshiping the Egyptian gods, but they're also doing something else in verse 14 and 15. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the Lord's house, and I saw the women sitting, in the, sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And he said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see even more detestable acts than these. So here's what's going on. Weeping, he sees some women. He moves to another part of the temple, and he sees women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was the Babylonian god, the fertility god. And the fertility god, really in ancient cultures, covered kind of two areas. Fertility as in like, I want to have a bunch of kids, and fertility as in we need the crops to reproduce. So that's kind of the, the, the overview of like a, or the part, of a, the part of the world the fertility god was in charge of, you know. And so we, this is what we need. And so um, the Babylonians, what they believed is, the, the way the, the, the legend goes, is that Tammuz, this god, died every year at harvest time with the crops and would come back to life in the spring. And so every year, you know, we have, we have religious holidays, right? You know, we have Christmas, we have Easter. I mean, not even just religious holidays, right? We have Fourth of July. And, you know, as Americans, we kind of know all these holidays. It's just part of who we are, you know. Um, this was one of the Babylonian holidays that was just like part of who they were. And every year in the fall, they would have a big celebration because Tammuz died with the crops and they would weep and throw like a funeral for this god. And then in the springtime, they would throw like a ceremony when the Tammuz would be rebirthed, right? And would come back to life. And so um, what's happening here, most scholars agree, is this. Uh, they're not actually worshiping 
Tammuz necessarily. They're not doing the, um, it says they're weeping for Tammuz, but um, what's probably happening here is they've mixed the religion of Yahweh and the law of Moses and the Babylonian religion. They've mixed them together. And so they're not weeping for Tammuz dying. They're, weep, they're taking that whole system of this God is dead and we're going to hold a funeral for this God, and they're applying it to Yahweh. And they're saying, because we just read, God can't see us, right? God's not here. God has died. That's what they think. And so then these women now are holding a funeral for God. They're saying, uh, who was it? Was it, um, you know, Nietzsche, right? God is dead. That, <laughs> that's kind of what they're doing here. They're saying God is dead and we're having this funeral. Um, <clears throat> uh, we're having this funeral for Yahweh, um, just like the Babylonians would for Tammuz. They've lowered his status to say, this God of ours is just like all these other gods. He's just one of the pantheon, and now he's been defeated. All right, now verse 4, the sun worship, verse 16. This is like the, I'm sorry, not verse 4, scene 4. Verse 16, so he brought me to the inner courts of the Lord's house. So now they're moving in more and more. And there was about 25 men at the entrance of the Lord's temple, uh, at the entrance of the Lord's temple between the portico and the altar, with their backs to the Lord's temple facing towards, uh, facing turned to the east. They were bowing to the east and worshiping the sun. So now he goes, and there's more guys, and they're in there, and they have their backs facing the temple. Now, every culture in the history of the world, turning your back on somebody means the exact same thing, right? If somebody's talking to you and you turn your back, right, it's always insulting. There is no culture where somebody goes, sweetie, I love you. And then they turn around and fold their arms and goes, oh, he loves me too. Right, that's, so turning their back to the temple was a very obvious right, uh, imagery. Uh, and then they're, not, they're turning their back to the temple, which to them would have been west, and they're facing east towards Babylon, towards the, the um, rising sun. And lots of cultures had some kind of sun worship. But these 25 punks, they're facing east towards Babylon and worshiping the sun. Like um, the first elders, here's what's going on. So in this part of the temple, the elders are appealing to the Egyptian gods. Egyptian gods, please save us. And then in this part of the temple, these other guys are appealing to the Babylonian gods. They're just like, at this point, we'll take anybody who will save us, except for our own god. Right? So they're worshiping the Egyptian god. They're like, what's it called? Hedging their bets. You know, one of these gods is bound to save us. So before we get to the next part where God is going to do something about this, let's stop and think about what we've seen. I want to read you this quote. I think this might be in the um, bulletin thing there, but let me read you this quote. It says, in four, by this guy, Ian Dugid. In four, he's a commentator guy. In four brief scenes, then, Ezekiel has shown the comprehensive nature of the sins of Jerusalem. Their sin extends, extends from outside the city gate to the inner courtyard of the temple itself. It involves both men and women, even the 70 elders, symbolic of the leadership of the whole people. It includes idolatry imported from all sorts of surrounding nations, Canaan, Egypt, and Babylon, involving all kinds of gods, male and female, human figures, animal figures, uh, stellar bodies, uh, you know, because they were worshiping the sun. This is a unified, universalized religion, the ultimate multi-faith worship service. From the Lord's perspective, however, the picture is one of abomination piled on abomination. So what they're doing, God looks at it and he goes, this is disgusting, what is happening here. It's not just like, God isn't just thinking, boy, that's kind of a bummer. I really wish that they would be better, right? He looks at it and he's angry. You can imagine this, right? Like, there are things that are just kind of bum you out. You know, you go to McDonald's, you order a double cheeseburger, and you say, no pickles. And then it shows up, and it has pickles on it. Come on, guys. That's a bummer. But also, it's not that big of a deal. But if you were walking down the street, and you saw an elderly person on the ground getting beat up by two youths, kids, you know, like teenage. That's what Kayla always says. If you listen to the podcast, Kayla, that was for you. Two, two youths, <laughs> and they were beating the tar out of this old man. That's not, that's disgusting, right? That's infuriating. That's a whole nother level of wrong. That's not, you messed up the pickles on my double cheeseburger, 
right? That's like, that, this is what God thinks about what's happening in the temple. A lot of us look at, a lot of us have this picture, and we'll talk about this at the end too, of our, in our minds of God, as like he thinks about sin like the pickles on a burger. Oh, it's just kind of a bummer. That's not how God sees sin. He looks at it like with this righteous anger. And that's what we read here. Look at verse 17. And then we're going to read into the rest of chapter 9 here. And he says, so look at God's anger. Do you see this, son of man? Is it not enough for the house of Judah to commit these detestable acts that they're doing here? They must also fill the land with violence and repeatedly anger me, even putting the branch to their nose. So he says, look, not only are they worshiping these false gods, they're filling the land with violence. We're going to talk about this more later in the book of Ezekiel. Here he touches on it briefly. But basically, once you've given up on the law of God, it doesn't just show up in worship. It shows up in the way you treat other people as well. And these leaders uh, were, um, uh, and the, 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 the wealthy in the land, as you can read in, I think it's the book of Amos, um, were really abusing and taking advantage of the most vulnerable people in the land. And so he says, not only are they worshiping, they're like doing violence, they're cheating people. And it says, uh, even putting the branch to their nose. Uh, this was an ancient idiom that no idea... Nobody has any idea what it means, right? Putting the branch to their nose, there's a bunch of theories, but the truth is nobody has any idea what that phrase means. But it's obviously not good, right? It's, it's something bad. Um, and so uh, what's God's plan? How's he going to deal with this injustice? How's he going to deal with this false worship? Therefore, I will respond with what? With wrath. That's a strong word. Not with anger, with wrath. I will not show pity or spare them. Though they call out loudly in my hearing, I will not listen to them. And then verse 1 in the next chapter. Then he called out loudly in my hearing, Come near, executioners of the city, each one of you with a destructive weapon in his hand. So God says, look, I'm going to pour out my wrath, like in the days of Noah, like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, like in the Exodus, like he did with the Canaanites. He says, I'm going to pour out wrath. And the way he does it, he calls together this sort of angelic special forces team. And in the CSB, they kind of soften the language here. It says, each had a destructive weapon in his hand. What that literally says is like a war club, right? Like a hammer or a club. Did anybody see Braveheart? You know about Braveheart? It's a movie. Anyway, there's a one guy in Braveheart who everybody's like slicing each other up with swords. It's a pretty brutal movie. Uh, but there's like the one guy who's out there swinging a hammer. You know what I mean? And you see somebody get hit with that hammer and you're like, that's worse than a sword, <laughs> right? Clubbing somebody to death is a lot worse. Than, I mean, they're both not great, but I mean, it's brutal. And he uses that image on purpose to show this is going to be brutal. Verse two. So let's see what the team. After this, let's look at the team. I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with a war club in his hand. That's, oh, he says it there, war club. And there was another man among them clothed in linen, carrying writing equipment. They came and stood by the bronze altar. Then the glory of the Lord, sorry, the glory of the God of Israel uh, rose from above the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. He called to the man clothed in linen and carrying writing equipment. So what happens next is the squad gets into position Six angelic guys with these big clubs and hammers. And then there's a seventh guy, and he stands there. He's the dude in linen. So linen meaning he's not dressed for war. He's like the leader. And he's standing there, and he's directing them, and he has a writing stuff. He's taking notes. Um, and then the glory of the God of Israel moves from the temple, and it goes to the outer barrier of the temple complex, and it stops. The big throne thing moves, and it stops. And it's, that's a really sad verse. Right? Solomon built this temple about 400 years before this. And if you read in 2 Kings, when Solomon, is it 2 Kings? 1 Kings? 1 Kings, when Solomon builds the temple, um, he prays, and then this really cool, like this fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice on the altar. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and this big cloud and everything fills the temple so that, like, the priests have to leave the temple complex. And it's this really amazing, like, God's presence inhabits this temple in a special way. And here we are 400 years later, and that amazing imagery from 1 Kings is being reversed. Right? God is not inhabiting the temple. He's leaving, and he sits on the outer side of the temple. And then verse 4, the mission, 4 to 11. Pass through the city of Jerusalem, the Lord said to him. That's the guy in the linen. 
and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the detestable practices committed in it. So God says, look, before this angelic hit squad goes out there and does what I'm commanding them to do, I need you to go out and find all the people who looked at what was happening in the temple and went, ugh, and put a mark on their forehead. And we're, gonna, we're not going to judge those guys. The interesting thing, though, is um, it's like a member Passover. It's the same kind of idea with Passover. Um, it's also like the reverse. This is why I told you reading uh, Revelation doesn't make sense if you don't know Ezekiel really well, right? Because he used a lot, John used a lot of the imagery. You know, the mark of the beast in the Revelation. It's these people belong to the world's evil system of Babylon. They have the mark of the beast. This is the opposite. So he, the mark of the beast is taking this idea here and flipping it and applying it in Revelation. But the interesting thing here is it doesn't actually say whether they found anybody. If you read carefully, he just says, go and do this. And then the next thing in verse 5, we're going to see the judgment. But he might have. It's kind of implied, but it also doesn't actually specifically say there was anybody there. All right, verse 5, let's keep going. So whether they found some people or not, he spoke to the others in my hearing, pass through the city, uh, through the city after him and start killing. Do not show pity or spare them. Slaughter old men, the young men, the women, and the children, the older women, but do not come near anyone who has the mark. Begin at the sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out killing the people of the city. That's a brutal vision. He says, I need you to start at the temple and everybody that doesn't have that mark, I need you to hit them with a hammer. That's tough, right? Work your way out. Men, women, children, old people, everybody. Just go for it. And they start where? At the temple with who? Those 70 elders. Like, rightfully so, they're the first ones that get it. And they work their way out. And then verse 8, it gets worse. While they were killing, I was left alone. So they're out there killing. And Ezekiel is sitting at the temple with God, watching this happen from afar. And I fell face down and I cried, Oh, Lord God, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel when you pour out your wrath on Jerusalem? He answered me, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is extremely great. The land is full of bloodshed. The city is full of perversity. For they say the Lord has abandoned the land he does not see. But as for me, I will not show pity uh, or spare them. I will bring their conduct um, on their own heads. So right in the middle of all of this happening, Ezekiel breaks down and he cries out to the Lord. If you kill everyone, how will there be a remnant? How will you fulfill your promise to David to bring forth the Messiah. I think that's interesting. Notice he doesn't say to God, how could you do this? The people don't deserve it. It's not what he says, right? He says, you can't kill everybody because if you kill them all, the Messiah can't come. That's an important idea, the idea of the remnant. We're going to get back to that later. And then the last verse, 11. Then the man clothed in linen, carrying the writing equipment. So the guy who was walking around watching the killing, taking notes, he reported back, I've done all that you have commanded me. So once the hit squad is done clubbing everyone to death, when the streets are filled with blood and bodies, when the screaming and the panic of the city in this vision goes silent, the man clothed in linen, he closes his book, he surveys the scene, then he walks across the temple, courtyards, and he walks up and he gives his report to God, to the glory of God, and he says, I've done everything you've commanded me. So you can imagine Ezekiel here. He sits down and he starts crying and weeping. His heart is broken over the idolatry, broken over the judgment, broken over the amount of death that he's just seen. And there's more to the vision. We're going to get to that next time. We're going to leave it there. All right. So the question today, though, is judgment like this, really? If you read about this, if you read that passage and you went, cool, Bible ninjas, right? Angel ninjas or something. You complete, something's wrong with you. You completely missed the point. Most of us read about judgment, stuff like this in the Bible, and we're really taken aback. Uh, but there's a difference between seeing this and reading it with a heavy heart and seeing the, and just going, oh, that stinks, and seeing this and going, God is wrong. There's no way God would ever do something like this. Or Ezekiel is wrong. We have this very common thing in our culture now where we just, we've, taken what God has revealed about himself 
this whole beautiful picture of God. We've chopped most of it off, and we threw it over there. And we said, I don't like it. So I'm not going to do it. God is not wrath. He's not judgment. God is love, right? Uh, but doing that, I think, really misses the mark. When we say, when we hyper-focus on God is love, and we get rid of the part of God is the judge of sin, we're missing a few things. And let me tell you how this misses the marks. First, it misses the biblical truth. People that love to pit the love of God against the wrath of God, uh, they, they like to do it as if it can't exist at the same time. Now, I've never actually done this, but I bet if I printed out every, let's say I took one piece of paper per verse, and I printed out every verse that talks about the love of God, and then I printed out every verse where God talks about judgment, which stack do you think would be taller as you read through the prophets and the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and even Jesus? And the you know talks about being that God has given him the judgment. I think one stack would be very tall, and the love stack would be a lot smaller. Now I'm not saying one is more important than the other, but I'm saying if you just look at the uh, the, the the sheer number of verses and the number of parts of Scripture that talk about the wrath of God and the love of God, you can't throw this pile away without throwing away like more than half of the Bible. And so if we want to be a church and be a people who are faithful to what God has revealed about himself, we have to say, I believe that this is who you really are, even if I don't like it all the time. I'm going to assume the part of me that doesn't like your, your wrath and justice is because something's wrong with me, not because something's wrong with you. So that's the first thing. If we want to be faithful, biblical kind of people, we have to let God speak for himself. The second thing is, when we take away the, holy, the wrath of God, and we just say, oh, he's only love. We miss the holiness of God. Our sin is against a perfectly holy God. What we're doing is we're saying God doesn't really care about sin. He doesn't care about who he is and himself. So let me explain it to you this way. <clears throat> um, I've used this illustration like a hundred times. And the reason I do is because it's good. Uh, sin, I'm sorry, any offense, you can do the same offense, like the same wrong thing against two different people the exact same action, and it's worse against one person than the other, right? Like the, the example I always use is if you don't like something I say in a sermon and you got up and you slapped me, that would be bad, right? Don't Will Smith me, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, but how bad would it be really? Would you do a day in jail for that? No. Even if I called the cops and I was like, I want you to arrest Dennis, he slapped me they would probably just write you a summons and then you would do community service. Now, if you were at a speech that Biden was giving and you were at the rally and you were one of the people that gets paid to sit behind him and look like you're really interested, you know, like every political person for the last 50 years does that, uh, and then you walked up and you're like, I don't like that, and you hit him in the back of the head, ugh, look, you're gonna do some jail time. <laughs> it's the same thing. All you did was hit the guy at the podium but the difference is, who's the guy at the podium? One of these people is a lot more important than the other person, right? Here's the thing. God is not the president. He is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more holy, infinitely more righteous, infinitely better than any of us. And every sin that we commit is committed against him. And because he's holy and perfect, every tiny little sin is a sin against an infinitely holy God. And so when you say... God would never judge even little sins. What you're saying is his holiness doesn't matter. His importance is who he is. His perfection is not real. Third, when we take this away, when we take away the, the wrath of God, um, what we're missing is also that people are made in God's image. One of the reasons God judges sin is because when we sin, we're not just sinning against him. Usually we're also sinning against each other. And every person that you meet, Every single person that you meet, the, the barista at the coffee shop, right? The guy who drives the bus that you get on, uh, me, <laughs> right? Somebody like um, just yesterday, we were driving and I saw a guy and I thought, is he dead? He was on the side of the road. He was clearly like wigging out. He was high. He was laying there. And then all of a sudden he snapped up and I was like, okay, he's still alive. But that guy, Everybody that you meet is made in the image of God. And even though that image is marred, we all hold within us right, this, the imago Dei, the image of God. And so when you sin against somebody, one of God's creatures, right, you're not just sinning against like some dude. 
right? You're sinning against somebody who was made in the image of God. And so God, if we say he doesn't do anything about that, what does that make him? Somebody who doesn't even care about the people that he's made in his own image. And then fourth, when we take this, the judgment stuff away, it misses the goodness of God's original creation, right? The world isn't supposed to be like this. And to take away the judgment of God is to say his purpose for this world doesn't really matter. He doesn't care that the world has fallen and he's not going to do anything to put it back together. And so you can see the biblical picture of God is one that we read here. He's sending out his hit squad of angelic beings to dish out judgment on the people who deserve it. Um, but we live in San Francisco or, you know, we live here. We don't see the judgment of God all day. We don't, we kinda, we don't think about it very often, do we? And we like to put this biblical idea aside because it's just not, we don't see it all the time. Um, I think it was right before the pandemic, I read an article, a very interesting article. I didn't bother to look it up <laughs> for the sermon. I'll just tell you about it. You could probably find it. But it was, um, I think it was called something like, life is about to get very expensive for millennials. And what it meant, what the whole article was explaining was uh, Uber, Lyft, you know those scooters everybody rides around? Uh, Grubhub, DoorDash. So what they did was they had all this VC funding to artificially lower the prices of all of those things so that we get hooked on it. And then because we're hooked on it, they're going to slowly start raising the prices and everything's going to get very expensive. And so for years, we lived in sort of an artificial false ecosystem. It wasn't the real way that it worked. That stuff was all more expensive. It's just somebody else was paying for it. And they kind of put us into this false sense of this is the way the world works, and they're trying to change how we think. Um, I think the same idea is true of God's wrath. We're so used to him being patient, and we're so used to him holding off wrath and judgment that we think that's how it always works. This is how God always operates. But pretty soon the Bible tells us the VC funding is going to run out and real life is going to hit. And the, so the question isn't, why is God wrathful in the Bible? It's why, the question is, uh, why hasn't he been doing this all along? Why hasn't he been this wrathful all along? Why aren't these angelic hit squads moving through San Francisco right now? Because we're all guilty. I'm guilty of using people for my own purposes. So are you. I'm guilty of sinning in all kinds of ways against God's image bearers. I'm guilty of idolatry, right? Every time I take the marks of success from the little from the world, and I apply it to our little church plant here. That's guilty of not trusting God in idolatry, in the house of God. So if this is all true, how do we escape God's wrath? And the answer is, we look to the cross. The, these angelic hit squads, the wrath that we read about in chapters 8 and 9, and we'll read more about later in the book of Ezekiel, all of that was, what happened to the people in this vision is nothing compared to what happened to Jesus on the cross. Because each one of these people took the wrath just for themselves. But Jesus took the wrath for everybody. And so the way to avoid it is like what we saw in this chapter. you got to have that mark on your forehead. you got to have the reverse mark of the beast, right? Just like Passover. you got to be the one that God looks at and goes, he trusts, she trusts in what I did for her or him on the cross. Has the mark. And so the judgment is going to pass over that person. Um, Josue, let's apply this, right? Josue and I have been talking about preaching a bunch lately, like when we meet. And uh, just the last couple of weeks, last few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about application in a sermon and how important application is for a sermon. And it's funny because I just taught him all about this and we've been chatting, reading the book and everything. And uh, Okay, so all that to say that today's sermon has absolutely no application. <laughs> um, today we did chapters eight and nine. The book of Ezekiel is judgment, wrath, and then more judgment, all the way from chapter 4 until chapter 33, basically. And what I want to do today is just lay the foundation that I want to build on later. So hopefully people that aren't here, because almost everybody's not here, will listen to this in the podcast. Um, what I want you to, what I want, I guess the application, I guess there's no application, there's maybe a little. I want you to just wrestle with this idea, because we're going to be talking about this for the next few months. And as we think about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and how he's coming back to judge in the end times and, you know, all this stuff. I want you to think two things are true of the people around you. Everybody that you see. When, you, when I sit in Beacon, the coffee shop down the street, and I love sitting in Beacon, and it's all, you know, 
uh, it's becoming more and more full of people now that they've opened back up, right? So I'm excited about this. They might not go out of business. Woohoo! Um, but as I sit in there, or if you sit in your office or wherever you are sitting in traffic and you look around, two things are true of almost everybody around you. The first thing is that they hate the idea of the wrath of God. They hate that Christians talk about it. They hate that we really believe that God is going to come and he's going to judge sin. But at the second, the second thing that's true about them is that without turning to Jesus in repentance, every one of them is going to have to stand before him in the judgment seat. And that's a terrifying prospect. The stuff we just read about is a vision. And what visions are, it's like supposed to teach us about a reality. And the reality was, so in the vision, these Bible ninjas, these angel ninjas, whatever, they go and they storm through the city and they club everybody to death. What really happened was the Babylonian army went through the city of Jerusalem and did this. They killed women and children and old people and young people, and they raped and they pillaged and they burned the temple to the ground and they stole people's belongings. Almost nobody survived. And God says that that happened because I was the judge. And then what else he says, though, is, and what happens in eternity is going to be infinitely worse than what happened in Jerusalem to the person that you're sitting next to in a coffee shop, to the person that you're sitting next to when the big rig flips over and you have to sit on the Bay Bridge for six hours or whatever, right, like we're talking about, the person you're sitting next to at the ball game that you work next to every day is going to have to face the wrath of a perfectly holy God. And so that should, uh, because that's true, we can't just gloss over this truth. We can't cut it out or we can't relegate it to some second level of Christian teaching. We have to be people who really understand it to the depth of our being because that's one of the motivations we have to get out there and to talk about Jesus, to talk about the love of God, the flip side, right? To talk about the cross. I want to read to you just the end. Uh, sorry, just to end, I want to read to you this quote from a book called Apologetics at the Cross. Because God is holy, he stands over and against, he stands against the corruption of his good creation. Because he's loving, He's not indifferent towards the corruption of the world he loves. God's judgment flows out of both his holiness and his love. It is part of his settled and active opposition against anything that opposes the good. I love that. Like, I'll read that again. God's judgment flows out of both his holiness and his love. Right? He's all these things at the same time. And we do not want to be the kind of church that just, eh, we don't like this part of who God has revealed himself to be. All right, let's pray. And so, Lord, you know, this, is, this whole section of Ezekiel is tough, and um, <clears throat> it's tough to read about your judgment. It's tough to read about wrath. Um, but part of that is because the sinful hearts within us, we don't really believe we're as bad as we are. You know, we think we're better than we are. We think our sin is not that big of a deal. All right, we think our sin is like, what was the illustration? Um, you know, just a small thing, like the forgetting the pickle or, you know, putting the pickles on or whatever. But the truth is our sin is, is so much worse than that. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us perspective on our sin because that also then gives us perspective on what you've done for us on the cross. We thank you that you have um, saved us from the depths of our sin. We thank you that you have not left creation to... Um, just rot away, but that you are making all things new. So we ask for our little church here that we'd be a part of that plan, that you would really just press into our hearts the idea of judgment, and that you would use that as part of the motivation to share the gospel with the people around us, to pray for them and love them and uh, to bless them and have good conversation with them. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.